Hello and welcome to the 551 podcast. This is Wes Burdine, your host. And uh, last week we did something different and I, uh, I decided to call up my friend Bruce McGuire, um, a soccer aficionado, but also a, a big music aficionado. And, uh, and we just talked about um, uh, three songs that changed his life. And this week I'm doing... The same thing. I'm uh, I'm I'm bored with no soccer, and so uh, let's talk to Alexi Lawless, who you know is is obviously um, uh, far more famous than uh, than me and Bruce and anyone else we know. Um, and so uh, you know he's obviously been someone who has had a lot of music in his um, kind of public persona, and uh, he's a, always a funny guy to talk to. Um, he, he's uh, you know obviously this this guy who. Um, uh, is controversial, right? He, he, people have, uh, very mixed feelings about him, but I, I will say that I've met, um, met him several times over the years. And, uh, when, when I was just like a nobody with a podcast with Bruce and he's always been, uh, way nicer than he should be. Um, and, and has always had time for, for me and for, for this podcast. So it's kind of a blast to get a chance to talk to him about this. Um, you know, we will have probably a couple more of these, and then we'll come back and do some soccer stuff with the regular hosts. Uh, but I appreciate everyone um, giving the feedback so far on my interview with Bruce, and also, you know, um, uh, hopefully everyone's taken care out there, and uh, and we'll see you soon. My guest today is Alexi Lawless. He's a commentator for Fox Sports, a former U.S. men's national team star defender. Uh, after the 1994 World Cup, he became the, the first American to play in Serie A for Padova. Um, he's obviously best known for his uh, uh, album that he released with his band, The Gypsies, and then his seven solo records, including 2019's Look At You. Uh, Alexi, it's great to chat with you again. Uh, I, I, let me ask, start by asking, like, how are you surviving quarantine time? Are you doing okay? Well, I feel a whole lot better after that introduction. <laughs> that makes me sound uh, that makes me sound awesome. I appreciate that. It's great to talk to you. Uh, you know, we were we were discussing a little bit off air. We're just all muddling through this together. Yeah. I don't. I have no context for this. Uh, I tell my kids all the time that they're going to have a hell of a story to tell their children when when their children are complaining and whining about something. I mean, that whole walking to school in, in the snow, yeah. that's getting blown out the window. So <laughs> it's going to be really interesting to see to see that. But I'm in lockdown with the family. We're trying to stay off each other's backs and, and not get on each other's nerves, uh, doing the homeschooling thing, uh, the online uh, schooling thing that we have going on. So I'm, I'm right there with, uh, with everybody else. But I also uh, you know, I have some perspective and understand that Relative to a lot of people out there, uh, I'm incredibly fortunate and privileged to be able to uh, to do this. And if this is what we have to do in order to keep ourselves and others uh, safe and get back to some sort of new normal that that hopefully involves sports and in particular soccer, then that's a it's a, a small price to pay. Yeah. Well, you're um you know you've been doing these digital videos and your uh, quarantine beard is looking. Uh, fantastic. I just want to say. I got a full-on uh, Tom Hanks castaway uh, yeah. Wilson type of feel going on. Or or up in, you know, I should be working on a manifesto in a cabin out in the, <laughs> in the middle of the woods right now. This is the, this is the most facial hair I have had since 
the glory days of the goatee back in the 90s. Uh, so we'll see. I'm, I'm threatening my my wife. Uh, the only concession I made to her was I did shave my neck, but I'm threatening to get the uh, the goatee back. So it's it is it is all over the place. I'm growing hair in places I never thought I could. Yeah, getting old, man. That's what happens. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I fully expect um, you know the the goatee to make a, a one day return. I'm sure on air. Uh, as as you kind of return uh, return back to normal, so looking forward to that. Um, <clears throat> I want to start by asking you before we we get into this um, and and kind of your your musical taste and the these uh, three songs. I want to ask you about your most recent music because you put out a couple um, records in the last three years. I think three mm-hmm. records in, uh, since twenty sixteen. What's the what's the process for making those and like where do you record and who who's playing on these records? So I've been doing music uh, even before I was kicking a ball, and I continue to do it after I kick a ball. It's a huge part of my life. Uh, I grew up in a uh, a household that that was not athletics based. My dad uh, was a professor, my mom was a writer, and my mom was heavily into music and got me into music, taught me how to play guitar. You know, she gave me her uh, her acoustic and basically taught me a few uh, folk chords and and I gave my love a cherry <laughs> and I said thanks mom and I took it and, and went and went on my own. Uh, I have continued to write and to perform uh, and to record. The good part as you know in this day and age Anybody can record. Uh, right. Back 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 in the day, you, it was a much bigger thing. Obviously, much more expensive now. So I have a studio in my house. I am in front of uh, Pro Tools sessions daily. Uh, some of it, uh, it that is coming out of this lockdown is, dare I say, uh, okay, uh, adequate. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I've put I've put a, a steady uh, uh, stream of stuff out over the last few years. Uh, I work with a couple different people. And I record most of the stuff here in the house. Uh, I got some other guys that kind of brighten things up and clean some stuff up for me. But you know, the the ability to record in your house has opened the the opportunity up for so many more people. It also means that there's a glut of crap out there. I like to think that that mine is is good. And if you hadn't heard it, it's just straight ahead pop rock. Yeah. Uh, I'm not breaking any uh, any type of boundaries or uh, anything revolutionary when it comes uh, to to the music, but it's the type of music that I want to listen to when I get in a car, put the windows down, drive real fast, and uh, and and crank it up. You'll see some of my influences when we start talking about uh, music, but um, you know, it's something that I love to do, something that I will continue to do for all three of the people, including my mother, that actually uh, care and listen to it. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've I've, mother, I've, listen, I've listened to almost all of them, I, th- I think. So, um, so at least you've got about four of us who've, who've put on those. Uh, Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Well, as someone who gets his uh, his um, quarterly eight dollar ASCAP checks, uh, I'm I'm totally with you on uh, on nice. getting. So, nice. um, so uh, let me. You you kind of did a little bit of this, but how did you get exposed to music? in the world. Um, you said, you know, your mom kind of introduced you to the guitar and things like that, but in terms of when you would find, um, something cool, something that really affected you, where did that come from? So I'm the product of a Midwest upbringing. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, in the suburbs of Detroit. I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And so I grew up in that whole, uh, AOR type of world. Um, WLLZ and WRIF, the two main rock stations in Detroit, uh, uh, 98.7 and 101.1 wheels and riff, respectively. Those were (laughs) where I got my my music and so it was a steady diet of of music that was coming coming through. I also grew up 
uh, portion of my childhood was spent in in Greece, and so I had a little bit of, I guess you would say, European influence, and that's where things like uh, the Bee Gees would would come into play, or or mm-hmm. or or, or, or English type of uh, stuff. The first album I ever had uh, was a. 72 release. I didn't get it in 72. I got a few years later, but it was a 1972 release that Decca put out for the Rolling Stones called Rock and Rolling Stone. I always remember it because it had Mick on the front with all of these motorcycles around. It was one of those compilation albums in order to satisfy a contract that they had. And and I remember playing it in my... uh, in my basement, 19th Nervous Breakdown. And that was my first real exposure to uh, to to music, playing it and and actually having it on my own as opposed to hearing it come out of a, of a radio. And then I would go next door to the older kids who were my neighbors, and I remember going down into their basement because everything good happened in a basement. Probably everything bad happened in a basement too, but everything good happened in a basement. <laughs> I grew up in the I'll suburbs too. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I right? know that. Yeah. So I walk down and I see the uh, they, had, they had done – logos on the wall so the stone's lips were up there and they they dropped the needle on a whole lot of love from zeppelin and that was that was something that i hadn't heard that was not 19th nervous breakdown that was something completely heavy and different Uh, and to this day it's still when i hear that first couple of seconds of whole lot of love it 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 transforms me and transfixes me uh forever and you know then went through all that and i played in uh, played in bands growing up, all the garage bands. Uh, I played, but I was also singing in like chamber singers and barber shop, and uh, a much more formal type of uh, of singing uh, and playing, doing talent shows and and all the, the you know garages and and uh, and parties on the weekend, all that kind of stuff, along with the the sports that I was doing. Obviously, a lot of soccer and a lot of hockey uh, growing up. So that was that was my musical. My musical background, and as I said, my mom really encouraged me. I went the two blocks down to Mrs. Mrs. Van Heusen's piano lessons at a young age, kicking and screaming and, and bitching uh, the entire way and, and hating my mom for it in the moment. And I love her so much for giving me that basis and that that formula of, especially when it comes to pop music, being able to work out the mathematics of, of yeah. pop music especially. But that comes from... The, the you know the understanding and the and the theory and uh, and obviously the practice uh, from piano so that that's my musical upbringing if you will yeah and and were your was there um like popular music or or whatever um played in in your house was that stuff that you found from other kids or or did right. you did your parents have Led Zeppelin on or or something like I that I was I was really jealous when I would hear of other families and other kids whose parents the kids would get into their their record stash. My parents didn't have that. Uh, they were much more academics. The the music part of it, as I said, my mom played guitar, but she was it was kind of a uh, just yeah. a, a natural type of flower child existence. You learned your three or four chords, so you she could played some sing Pete Seeger on the weekends. Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't even about the music; it was about the scene. It was about the culture much more. You know, although she she was a wonderful singer and actually sang in in, in groups, but that was certainly not the type of music that I wanted to hear. And so I couldn't discover a whole lot when it came to uh, my parents. And a lot of my discoveries were other places that that came out. And the music that was playing in our house was 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 minimal um, and not something certainly that had any effect on me and, and not something I could relate to. Yeah, I'm, you know. I- I guess I think about um, the way rock music was partially ruined for me as a kid by my parents and by, by you know, my dad was um, 
a musician all his life, uh, still is, you know, and he um, uh, would play in, uh, when I was growing up, a bar band, basically, you know, they'd play Rolling Stones and um, Talking Heads. And I remember, you know, being, it was every Tuesday night, I'd be going to bed and I'd hear down in the basement, um, Psycho Killer, Keska Say. Oh my God. And, and just like <laughs> thinking this song is these, this music is terrible, right? So Rolling Stones and Talking Heads and so many of these bands were just garbage to me because it was like what my, you know, my dad was playing keys down there and, and uh, you know, his buddy Ed was uh, just screaming on the mic and it was just terrible. And, it's uh, amazing, though, that you that you associate that with with periods. And that's what we do with music. Yeah, and, yeah. and sometimes it's not even to do with whether it's a good or well, you can't tell me what a good song is because it's all yeah. your your, uh, you know, it's all your perspective on what you think. But that we associate these times and, and songs and that proverbial soundtrack of your life. It's amazing. And it does start at a, at a young age. You'll hear a song that maybe from a group you could care less about. And yet it takes you back to that time, either good or bad or, or somewhere in the middle. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I want to start with, um, you know, I asked you, like I'm doing on the, this um, this series, to, to talk about three songs that changed your life. And I want to ask you about this this first one, um, which, you know, will be familiar to, to jo- anyone listening to this, um, which is uh, John Cougar's uh, Jack and Diane came out in 1982 yep. off of uh, his American Fool record. Um, I want you to describe this song to me, and then I want to know more about your interaction with it. Little ditty about Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. Jack is going to be a football star, Diane's debutante backseat. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, I was starting out with uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Zeppelin, and I had, I had moved on to starting to kind of get that Van Halen kiss type of stuff that was going on, and then all that 70s yacht rockish type of stuff yeah. that was coming out, too. And uh, the Jack and Diane thing came out of, I was starting to get into music, I was starting to be in bands, I was starting to recognize that this was something that uh, not only did I love and that I was good at, but it gave me a, a, you know, a social platform to meet people. And as, as is always the case, obviously to, to meet girls. And when you sat down and were able to strum chords that brought a crowd and within that crowd, there were people that, (laughs) that you might want to spend some more time with. And the, the problem was that a lot of the music that I was listening to and hearing I, I had no way of replicating it. And oh, so it yeah. seemed very, very distant to me. And obviously the 80s are known for the glossy type of production and a, a real step up in that, that's for lack of a better word, that that's, that sweetness or that syrup that was kind of glazed over everything. And I, I love that. But here, you know, so here was this beautiful marriage in a song called Jack and Diane of the the authentic rootsy country esque uh, Americana type of guitar married perfectly with wonderful production, and in it, I saw an opportunity to be able to mimic and play things that were coming out of my radio 
with a much greater uh, consistency and um, with much greater with much greater impact. I could sit down and I could play that song. Everybody understood what that song was, and it wasn't a complete departure, something completely different than what they had uh, they had heard on the radio. And the ironic thing is that that from a from a John Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp, John Mellencamp, uh, as it as it progressed on perspective, Jack and Diane in and of itself is an incredible pop song. Mm-hmm. And he, he became much more rustic and much more acoustic based and veered off from that uh, later on. And to great effect. I mean, it was incredibly successful in what he in what he did. But I just loved that this song came on. I mean, this is a song with an acoustic guitar that sounded like a country song, and yet we were dancing at it at our middle school. Because at that time, in 1982, I was 11, 12 years old, and I was just getting into the whole thing, and uh, as I said, into music and into girls and all that, and you could you could dance to it. It had the claps going on, which I've recently read that the claps were actually there in order to maintain rhythm uh, and beat as, right. as just fill-ins. Uh, and when they went for the final mix... And started thinking about it, it had become such a part of the song that they ended up keeping them, uh, huh. keeping them in. And if you listen to that song, it's a, it's a very weird type of song and kind of pieced together as opposed to the simple John Cougar, John Mellencamp, <laughs> John Cougar Mellencamp type of stuff that came later that was so acoustic based and jingly and jangly. So uh, it, it, it was something that I hadn't heard before, but like I said, something that I could uh, relate to because I had this, this hard rock side, but then I had this melodic and especially acoustic side that was emerging. And that song kind of married both of those together. Uh, and it was just something that I loved. The image of uh, 12-year-old uh, Alexi Lawless, uh, you know, throwing back his hair with a glimmer in his eye to uh, to Betty over in the side <laughs> of the other side of the courtyard uh, playing Jack and Diane is, is uh, one that will... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, so, so, you know, my, my, my parents both worked and so I would come home and, you know, I was the, the latchkey kid, like so many of us and I, I would get in the house and I had the stereo all set up in the living room. I didn't have a stereo in my, in my room or anything in the living room. And since I knew that I had a bunch of hours before my parents would come home from work, that was the stage that was, and the, the, you know, the, the couch was the riser and it was all the, uh, you know, where this, where the audience was. And I would just crank it up. My little brother would either join me or would just kind of say, forget, I don't want to deal with this right, <laughs> right now. And whether it was a, a John Cougar, a, a John Cougar song, like, like Jack and Diane or anything else, that's where I would, uh, I, I would crank it up. And then it became a hit meant that everybody knew it and everybody heard it and you would hear it, it was ubiquitous. You would hear it going with, whether you were actually at a concert whether you were at school, people playing it through their, then I guess it would be Walkmans uh, or, or anything else, uh, or if you're just walking down the aisle of the Kresge's and you uh, you hear it playing. Uh, you, you mentioned your, your brother, Greg, um, who also is in soccer, also a, a music mm-hmm. fan. Um, he's younger than you, right? Am I? Yeah, he's three years younger than me, yes. Um, did, did you introduce, were you the, the cool big brother who introduced him to music, or was he... Um, did did he introduce you to uh, to cool music? He was much more alternative uh, in that you know for him he would he would be much more he would be much more attracted to someone say like Soundgarden than I mm-hmm. was. I, I was much more into melody uh, and melodic type of rock, and whether it was the voice or the actual uh, the full song, if there wasn't melody, 
I had a really hard time. So, for example, punk rock did nothing for me. Hmm. Uh, the mu- musically, it did nothing for me, and the 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 culture I, I couldn't I couldn't relate to. The yeah. ethos I could relate to. Yeah. In in I, I loved as long as people were paying attention, I enjoyed it. As is evident by. Uh, what I ultimately did in uh, in soccer, I didn't care if 100 people were screaming for me or against me. But I just didn't want them ignoring me. Yeah. Um, y- y- is there a a genre that um, that you've come back to, or type of music, or maybe it's just a specific artist that you have come back to and, and realize like, oh, I, I missed the boat on this. I was totally wrong about it when I was a kid or younger, or not just a kid, but. Yeah, you know, some of the uh, the 80s type of, um, I guess now, or well, in the 90s, it would have been called emo type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I missed the boat on. I was much more into much more mainstream type of stuff. So even something like like The Cure uh, uh, or, or um, Gene Loves Jezebel or uh, New Order uh, or those the, those types of things. Yeah, I mean, I it they they mean much more to me now than they did at the time, and it's not they that they weren't on my radar because the groups that I was around and I I didn't laugh at them or I didn't poo poo them in in any way. It just they didn't resonate with me. And and keep in mind, as as is often the case, if you're talking to somebody on this show that lived through that '80s period, it's going to be forever be colored by video. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that the, the video component is such a huge, huge part of our 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 background. And it, it's impossible to talk about that time uh, without mentioning how important that impact was, sometimes even more important than the songs. And this this reaction that we were talking about earlier that you have to songs is so often linked to the visuals surrounding mm-hmm. that song in, in the 80s in particular, because that's when it, MTV exploded and came on the scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I'm, I'm about ten years younger than you, and so the '90s was was my you know main teenage years, and um, definitely, well, because then MTV was still uh, playing music videos. Um, you know, you, you definitely there's the the weird thing where so much of your um, uh, taste in music comes through this this period where b- between like ten and twenty three years old. And uh, and yet, like so much of my youth was um, was you know, you, music was always attached to like high school type or junior high type of like associations. People, you know, for me, it was oh, all these grunge kids are wearing flannel shirts and they're kind of lame and kind of doofuses, and so I don't like grunge music. And so for <laughs> for me, it was like all everything Nirvana. You know, Bruce was talking about Jane's Addiction. I still hate Jane's Addiction, and all these bands that just because like they had an association association with those kinds of kids. Sure, I'm, yeah, I'm cool. You know, I'm more sophisticated, I think is the word Bruce used, you know, but, but yeah, you know, the cure was, there was a type of kid in that era who liked the cure. Um, and didn't probably, and and, and all those, and all those, that, that, that that grunge scene for someone like myself, who was so heavily involved into, and I know this is pejorative for a lot of people of this genre, but the whole hair metal type of thing, that was a direct response to that. And so therefore those of us that were into (laughs) into it completely saw it as we were being excluded. And that's not something for us because they're actually saying you suck and what you like (laughs) sucked. And so inherent in that is that you're, you're not going to be drawn to that. And so I, I looked at grunge from 
from that perspective too, and it, it turned me off to a lot a lot of grunge. Now a lot of it, even in 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 uh, a a, a normal situation I wouldn't necessarily like and it goes back to a lot of the uh, the melodic type of stuff that I, that I like but there was definitely that that response and therefore the individual <laughs> response and we'll talk about that here in yeah. a second yeah let's well let's talk about uh, the the glam uh, because you know you I, I think everyone who uh, knows that you're doing going to do this interview will obviously expect a song from rat and you yep. for your second song chose rats round and round their their kind of biggest hit. Um, that came off of uh, 1984's Out of the Cellar. Um, I was surprised to read up that it only hit 12, number 12. You know, that was their their kind of biggest hit on the Billboard. Yep. Um, but yeah, tell me about this song, and, and obviously tell me about your, your love of Rat. So Rat, for me, is the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I will die on that hill. I will fight you uh, uh, about it. Uh, there, as you know, there are bands that hit you at the perfect mo- moment. You can't explain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can try to explain it. And I'm going to attempt to explain it. But, but to people that can't comprehend that because they weren't there at that time, and obviously they're not you, it's never going to resonate in the way that it, that it did for me. It just hit me at the exact time. Once again, the... The MTV part of it was was huge. I was growing up in the suburbs uh, of Detroit. The Sunset Strip and Los Angeles uh, in the 80s is the stuff of legend, but it was as far away from suburban Detroit as anything could be. The only possible glimpse I had it was when the bands came through and we would go to Cobo Hall or go to Joe Lewis and uh, and see the bands that were uh, that were coming through. But I fell in love with the aesthetic, uh, the lifestyle, the culture, even though I wasn't living it, uh, I was far, far removed from it. And I romanticized it. And, and now keep in mind that while I was I was getting heavily into, like you said, uh, you know, we'll talk about rat here, um, the, the, you know, the poisons and the deaf mm-hmm. leopards uh, and, and those types of things I, coming out of the Van Halen and Kiss uh, type of thing. But I was also wh- whether it was sticks or foreigner. Uh, or Journey or Hall and Oates, uh, and but I was also marrying it with with Air Supply and Duran Duran and Nick Kershaw and Kachagugu and all these these different things, but the power uh, and the aesthetic of that whole '80s glam hair metal rock, whatever you want to call it, it really spoke to me. And in particular, when Rat came out. Uh, I just thought that the band was the coolest thing that I had ever seen. The music was so cool. And even from an actual musical perspective, uh, whether it was the notes that Stephen Piercy, the lead singer, was hitting, whether it was the guitar god status of uh, Warren D. Martini, it was just everything. It was the full package, the power, the the androgynous type of get up but mm-hmm. not in the Bowie-esque type of thing where you didn't quite know you knew exactly and it was done as a means to an end to get girls that's why you were yeah. dressing up like that in a strange it worked back in the 80s folks I know you're listening to it now <laughs> thinking how is that even possible it worked back then for a period of time it was it, it was a, a surefire way uh, in terms of teasing your hair and the makeup and the spandex and, and all that kind of stuff but even beyond that and a lot of it gets thrown out 
because of the aesthetic and actually works against it. But the, 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 the musicians, the musicianship. Uh, uh, so Round and Round is the, the biggest hit that Rat, Rat ever had. They never achieved that type of success again. They went on and had plenty of platinum albums, but it's the... It is their signature song and their signature uh, signal, so much so that there's actually a Geico ad out now that actually features Rat singing round and round all of these years later. And they still, from a, uh, a marketing perspective, felt that it was appropriate to, uh, to do that and that enough people, it would resonate enough uh, uh, with people. And I tried, to, I tried to, to, to find songs, at least a couple of them here, that people would know, even if they didn't like them, but they would, they would know them if they had lived through that and even that have lived on over the years. And Rat, Round and Round is, uh, is one of them. From the moment that I heard that album, it was an uh, album called Out of the Cellar. Uh, I put that needle down and we were still using needles back then. Uh, it, was, it, it changed my life. And to this day, it is still my favorite band when everybody, anybody asks me. Can I, um, that, all that, Makes sense. And I, I want to ask this in the most um, polite way. Um, <laughs> is that, why do you think it's something that you didn't maybe grow out of? Because obviously like right. you were, yep. you were in your teens and like it was, there's something silly about it, but it's something that you still love. And maybe you just kind of like play up how much you love it still. But, but is, is it something, it's a, a record that you'll still put on and just like put the windows down and, and just go? Yep. Uh, I will hear Rat, not just this record. I mean, I, yeah. I'm obviously deep in it, so I'll put the whole catalog on, and I'm I'm good with that. And and, and I can get into the Rat weeds if you want. Uh, and but nobody really wants to have that conversation no, with me. <laughs> That's a, there's a special Rat podcast somewhere somewhere out there. Though. It is. It is I, I, I believe me. I've done I've done it. I've written articles about them. I mean, the the day that I first they tell you don't meet your heroes, and the, and so when I got some level of of popularity and and fame, uh, the only thing I ever did in terms of accessing that and using it to my advantage was having my my people, if you will, uh, reach out to the rat camp and to set up a meeting. And it oh. was it was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, I was I was so worried that I was going to be disappointed, uh, and and I wasn't because you know these are people. Once again, I was I was in my living room. Mm -hmm fantasizing about what it would be like to be in that band or to be part of that whole scene. I mean, I, there was a point, uh, you know, I'm turning 50 years old and there was a point, uh, when I went out and got a pair of long johns, I didn't have to go out. I was in Detroit and Michigan. So they, I, we had plenty of pairs of long johns, white long them, yeah, johns. Yeah. And I went down in the basement and I splattered them with green paint all in an effort to look like the leather pants that Stephen Piercy wore on the uh, in the video for uh, uh, for round and round, their paint splattered pants, and then obviously they weren't leather; they were just long johns with green paint splatter all over them. I was obsessed. I had my rat bag that had all the bandanas and oh, all the other accoutrement, if you will, of the of the time, and it was it wasn't an obsession. It was just that was part of my life. Now. You grow out of things, as as you mentioned. I have look. I've I've grown out, and as I and as I said earlier, while I was heavily into that scene, I I like to think that I was also uh, pretty open and inclusive of a lot of other things. So as I said, I would I would put on a rat song, and then put on a Nick Kershaw song, uh, or I would put on a rat song and then go play Air Supply or uh, you know and and or Sticks or something mm -hmm. like that. And so these things that don't always go together um that was my musical palette and it was it was vast but the rat portion of it 
has lived long. And yes, I'll I'll play it up a little bit here or there because it, <laughs> I, I want to defend it. But in yeah. no way am I not being genuine with my with my love and my lifelong love yeah. of the band Rat. And I, I sometimes I can't explain it. I, I it's just it touched me in a way, and it and it shouldn't. I mean, I I don't really relate to those guys um, in their upbringing uh, or or necessarily in who they are. It's just they went in, they recorded an album, it found its way to this radio in suburban Detroit, and it spoke to me in a way that you can't. It's just kismet or whatever. It's it's I don't know what it is. I I mean. Obviously, there, there's a pretty easy connect that, that we can make to your career, which is kind of you as a glam soccer player or a glam TV personality. Um, so I'll, I'll make that quick, easy jump there. And what, what is it about being an over-the-top showman that, that you love? Uh, I've always considered myself an entertainer, uh, whether I was rehearsing, which is the same thing as practicing. Uh, taking it on a stage, which is the same thing as going on a field, uh, or putting on a performance in front of an audience, which is the same thing as going on a field in, in front of a uh, in front of fans. And uh, sometimes when you say that, and I think we've talked about this before, sometimes when you say that, people bristle uh, mm-hmm. or they cringe a little bit because it it somehow means that you're not taking it seriously or it's not genuine, authentic, and that's not that's not the case at all. But I did pattern my back then we didn't call them brands. But nowadays it would be called a, a brand, uh, an individual brand of the way that I looked. I knew it how I knew how my costume was important. I knew how my performance was important, the things that I said, but the way that I said things. And I, I patterned it all off of music, all off of especially that whole 80s scene where you know, people were big and bold mm-hmm. and colorful and larger than life and the you know, papering. Uh, papering the you know the the walls and the uh, signposts and doing it yourself in order to drum up attention and I I loved that part of it and so I knew when when that camera time came or that moment in uh, in in front of the camera came I knew I had to do it and my performance on the field obviously was going to say something but who who that performance was coming from and the aesthetic of it. That was that was important to me, and so it is manufactured in a sense, mm-hmm. um, but with with the best intentions, and I don't regret it. As a matter of fact, I'm incredibly proud of it because I think it augmented everything and certainly helped uh, and enhanced what I was and what I was about. But also in an indirect indirect way, and maybe a direct way, it also helped soccer. You know, I, I'm thinking I wanted to ask you about um, U.S. soccer players and who are maybe the best performers out there in that level and Clint Dempsey t- comes to mind to me of yep. in recent years of um I, I have no sense of him as a human uh, having never met him but of someone who you know n- knew how to manufacture a personality in some way or knew how to perform in a per- particular way and I wonder if if there's anyone now who um of of the current crop or, or wherever we are with U.S. soccer um, in terms of the men, uh, in terms of the women, obviously no one is better than Megan Rapino. She's sure she, <laughs> we can all bow to how good she is at, uh, at, at performing. Um, but in terms of the, the men is, is, or is Slim there... Pickens, Slim yeah. Pickens. I mean, I think, and not just for the, for soccer, but I think in sports in general, we've, I don't know if it's intentionally or not, but I think we've drummed that out of them or, or 
we've impressed upon them that that's not necessarily the, the thing to do. And and keep in mind, it, it is it is not easy. It it is, but but if you're going to do it, having the support of those around you that this is something that we're going to encourage. And you know you know you mentioned Clint Dempsey. Clint Dempsey and I couldn't be any more different yeah. in terms of personalities <laughs> and people. And yet we both understood and and found those roles and those costumes that we were comfortable with. So I, I don't think that you can be something that you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, so I do think that that performance in that role has to be something that at its, at its basis uh, and at its core is somebody that you are and parts of it. And, you know, yes, there are exaggerated parts of it. But ultimately, it's who you are. And I think Clint Dempsey found that. And and sports have always had heroes and villains. And, you know, WWE, WWF, all of that has played into that in the, in the way that they have uh, in the way that they have gone about it. But you know, all that is all that is to say is that uh, I, I lament the fact that we don't encourage players more to show their personality. And it does take a little bit of courage. Um, and, and it doesn't, it also doesn't mean that it's always going to go well. You have mm -hmm. to get that, that balance. And I'll be first to admit that sometimes that balance was off in terms of the performance and the persona, uh, they have to, they have to match up. And if one gets out of whack, it can, it can start to look mm -hmm. bad and it can start to look manufactured, uh, and it can start to lose, lose effect. So, yeah. um, you got, you know, you have to. You have to be constantly vigilant, either yourself, if you trust yourself to be able to get that balance back correct, or you have people around you that say, hey, uh, you need a kick in the ass now to get that balance back. Yeah, it's it's um, uh, there's a reason I, I tend not to interview um, soccer players. Um, they, they just um, they, they live in their world and, and some of them you can talk to them and uh, and I either get real insight or get something fun and enjoyable and you can certainly there's lots of players not just players but people out there who um who are who are very big performers but it, you can you can smell the shtick you know it, yep. it's just yep. like ugh. but you know there's lots of musicians out there who do that sure. um but uh let me let me transition to to the the third song here which is um definitely the one that uh i wa wasn't expecting maybe the most um probably because I don't think I really knew it at all. Um, mm -hmm. I know Amy Mann quite well, um, but Till Tuesday was was her original band that she was in. The the song you chose was Coming Up Close um, off their um, second record, 1986's Welcome Home. Describe the song for me. It is a uh, acoustic based, but obviously with the '80s, it's it's dripping with uh, whether it's delay or echo or or all the different chorus. It, it's so it it it, ha it is a an '80s type of song, but it is it is based on a, on a twelve string acoustic um, that is prominent throughout. Uh, for those that don't know who Amy Mann was, like you like you said, the lead singer at the time of Till Tuesday, she's gone on to an incredible uh, career as a solo artist, uh, Grammy nominated, and just um, incredible kudos and acclaim uh, as both a performer and as a writer, uh, and as a crush to many many people <laughs> out there over the <laughs> over the years. Uh, I I did not 
obviously I knew uh, Voices Carry, and so I, I they were on my radar as as a group in the '80s. But I was not a fan of Till Tuesday, where you would say. Um, you know, the, the, even on the level, even close to the level of the other bands that we have talked about. And actually this, this song and the group till Tuesday came much more on my radar later on. So while the song came out in 86, I didn't hear it until a couple of years later when I was driving at Rutgers university, exit nine off the turnpike state university of, uh, uh, of New Jersey, uh, I was at college there and a friend of mine who was giving me a ride had this album at that point, it was a CD sitting on the bottom of uh, the car. And I, I picked it up and I, I, I said, hey, what's this? We put it in. He played it for me. And it was once again, it was whatever happens, that chemical reaction that happens when it goes through your ears and into your brain. And I fell in love with uh, with it. And I fell in love with this song in particular, uh, specifically because of the words. I just think they're, they're beautiful words. Um, coming up close, uh, everything sounds like welcome home. Mm-hmm. And don't you know that I can make a dream that's only half awake come true? So that type of writing, uh, it just uh, it, it hit me immediately. So much so that I, I used it, and back then we were using Walkmans, as I started my, my life of travel, mm-hmm. uh, which from a soccer perspective, entailed almost every week getting on a plane and going different places. Um, I would play this song as we taxied down the runway for takeoff. Every single flight that I had, I had to play this song. And so back then I would I would <laughs> chew it up on the cassette tape so that it was ready to go. The captain would say, okay, uh, you know, seatbelts and we're on off we go. And as you're, uh, so my my association with this song is so much with the travel that I've done over my lifetime because every single takeoff I would play uh, coming up uh, coming up close um, from uh, from till Tuesday. So that's that connection that I have with the song and, you know, just the, the lyrics of it. it's just a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. And um, female musicians were certainly in the minority of my of my musical palette, but. Uh, when when they came uh, online and when they when they did affect me like uh, like till Tuesday and I guess more importantly uh, Amy Mann because I then went on and, and was a huge Amy Mann fan saw her early days when she first started solo uh, I would go see her in much smaller clubs than she was used to playing when she was just kind of starting out and just just a, a phenomenal talent one of the great writers I believe of uh, of her generation yeah um I mean, certainly, Bachelor Number One is is one of those records that I I continue to go back to and and just think this this um this sounds completely fresh and so it was fun pulling up some till Tuesday when you sent me your list um last week and and kind of running through it and and thinking like man I think I've I definitely had heard no no voices carry I don't know if I'd ever heard coming up close before um you know. I wanted to ask you about the the lyricism there because um, obviously we talked about um, John Cougar uh, very much a storyteller. Um, Rat obviously a little less storytelling, <laughs> <laughs> to be generous. Um, and then you know Amy Mann a, a, also an incredible storyteller and also you know I think I think has gotten even better than those kind of early days where the but this lyric yeah. um, uh, has this kind of this couple and they kind of end up going their own ways and. And um, hints around that, um, you know, hints hints around the emotional landscape there. Um, 
where where do you kind of go in this kind of uh, weight of kind of a melody uh, lyric or, or or something? What what tends to have the most weight when you fall in love with songs? Uh, well, I mean, obviously it's it's the combination of both. But you know, for example, this song at one point uh, she talks about uh, listening to a Dylan tape mm-hmm. and. This song is so good and so powerful, and it is such a perfect meld of both the lyrics and the melody that I'm willing to forgive that because I cannot stand Bob Dylan. Uh, not as <laughs> not as a writer, wonderful writer and everything like that, but the performance really just completely takes me out of the sure, moment in sure. terms of his uh, singing. I, I know I'm not alone there, but I also know that there's people that just turned off turned off this uh, <laughs> podcast. I recognize I recognize that, but that's how great this song is that I can. I can get over the fact that they they listen to a Dylan tape uh, in this song, and those you know those are the those are the things uh, that are that are important to me. I, you know I you know I mentioned the, the you know the, coming up close. I love the fact of this imagery of it, it's not a perfect story. It's not a perfect ending. It's there's nothing fairy tale about this. As a matter of fact, it's it's much more sad than hopeful, um, and yet. There's the recognition from, uh, you know, from the voice, whoever that voice is, you, you get to decide for yourself who that voice is, that even though it didn't, even though everything wasn't fulfilled, it was still worth, uh, worth the process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that speaks to everything from, from love to success to ultimately life in that it's not always going to go well and it's not going to be perfect and you are going to have successes and failures and even in the failures you're going to learn lessons and you can see value in in those types of things and i think that's that's a universal type of uh, concept but then to actually put that into words and into words that haven't been put together in the same way uh before you know that's 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 where you're cooking but if you don't have the if you don't have the melody behind it then the the power of those words get get lost and this applies to all types of music so you know i'll be working on a song and while i may think that i have a a great line if i can't find a an equally great melody to it and i don't always do it sometimes you just it rhymes and it fits and we're just going to go with it because nothing else is coming up but it will suffer because of that and the best songs marry a memorable melody with with mel- uh, memorable lyrics and and words, and I think this does a great job mm. uh, of doing that. And like you said, it, it is a it is a story, and you can put yourself in this story uh, as opposed to other groups that are much more big picture or evergreen types of things that encompass a lot of things. The detail, and I'm 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 not one way or the other. I I love some kind of fantastic and big picture type of lyric writing, but I also when you can drill down and find a really specific type of thing that jumps out of you uh, from a song, that can be incredibly powerful too. Yeah. All these songs came out when you were kind of a, a young teenager, you know, basically yep. between 11 and, and uh, you said you, you heard this really hit you in, in college. But um, what about that period made that so influential for, for the things that would last as opposed to, you know, I'm sure you could pick three songs from your twenties that, that changed things. But what about that kind of younger period for you was, was important? Well, I mean, so for example, I can hear a song. Um, I don't know. I can hear, uh, I can hear, uh, air supplies all out of love and I can picture myself, 
and and I know there's a lot of air supply people that are listening right now going, <laughs> I, I, I completely get you. Uh, it has nothing to do necessarily whether you like this the, the, the group or not, but I can picture myself in the skating in the backyard of a flooded uh, driveway in the winter in Michigan. And that's what I associate that in the same way that I can, I can picture, uh, I can hear sailing from Christopher Cross. And I remember being in, in the, the playroom basement of a friend of mine's who actually had a jukebox that had that. And I was so impressed that they had a jukebox in the first place. And then they were, we were playing, uh, we were playing that. I can tell you what it was like when I walked in to Kobo arena, uh, for the first time and was able to see, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, Bon Jovi opening up for Rat at a certain time. I can tell you wow. what yeah. it was like sitting there and waiting for Def Leppard in the round at Joe Louis Arena uh, to to begin. All of those different things. I mean, that it, it's once again. I think it's there is the, an element of nostalgia. There is an element of how impressionable you are at that time in all things, not just music and in all things that will stay with you forever. And I, look, I, I went on and there's a whole nineties decade that I'm not even dealing with right now that was incredibly <laughs> influential and important with me, but you know, it's just the, the resonance of time and place and smells and everything that you saw and everything you remember associated. I mean, I remember I was like, I was, I was what, 12 or 13 years old. And my mom, for whatever reason, agreed to let me go to Pine Knob Music Theater, uh, which was, you know, your typical pavilion type of thing with a, a, the grass and then the covered area. We didn't have enough money for tickets. And he, she let me go with my best friends. We were both 12 years old to the Pat Benatar Crimes of Passion tour. And she let his 16 year old older sister drive us there for some reason. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. We were 11, it would never happen today, but we went there. And so I, I remember just a whole world opening up in front of me and, and the smell of what that type of show uh, at that moment would be. And it was my eyes and ears and nostrils were just open wide at all of the sights and sounds. And I, I, I never went back. I, uh, I I tried to go to a Cranberries concert uh, when I was about that age, and, uh, and my friends were going, and my my parents uh, distinctly uh, put their foot down, and I'm I'm still upset about that. So I, I know that. <laughs> uh, also, it reminds me of uh, almost the almost famous scene, uh, the the film Almost Famous, where uh, yep. um, the the mother um, Frances McDermott don't do drugs, uh, yeah. <laughs> don't do drugs, yeah, just drops <laughs> drops him off and. Uh, that kid was way cooler than uh, than you and I will ever be. But um, yeah, he didn't know it at the time how cool he was. But man, oh man. <laughs> um, okay, I've got uh, I've, I've got uh, two final questions here for you. One is uh, um, I'm looking for the worst band of all time, and uh, the definition of worst band is the biggest volume of terrible music over the longest period and the most terrible. So a combination of the, the, the amount of crap that they've created and, and how crappy it's been. So worst band. Oh, worst band. This is going to kill me here. Um, so what, who am I not a fan of? Uh, I don't, I don't think they're the worst band, but the one, you know, so for example, I talked a lot about the grunge thing. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, Pearl Jam mm. uh, or Metallica, okay. I, I, they do nothing for me. Yeah, nothing. I, it's not that I can't appreciate what they did and how 
historic and monumental and impactful they were on everybody. But it just it doesn't it doesn't do anything for them. Yeah, I think Pearl Jam are garbage. So I'm 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 totally allowing that. And they, okay, good. <laughs> so there you go. There's uh, there's one. And 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 again, it's the, a lot of the punk stuff. I just I I can't get the the lack of melody, and and not only the lack of melody, but the forced lack of melody, which is probably what punk oftentimes was. I, I can't get it when I hear. Uh, the Stooges or uh, Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the one with about the dog? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I want to be your dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah, whatever. So, I mean, I, I'm i saying, what the hell is this? <laughs> and with, the, with yeah. the knowledge that there's another person that's saying, this is the best thing that I have ever heard. And that's the beauty of music. That's, that's it, that it can touch people in so completely different ways. And it can literally, what turns you absolutely off can turn somebody else completely on and 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 strike them deep. Uh, so that you know that kind of stuff does uh, does nothing for me. Jazz does nothing for me. Uh, uh, rap that lacks melody, yeah, uh, that it does it does nothing. More. So just just rapping over a beat. Um, yeah. I know that rhythm and and beat is important, but I think. It's a sandwich without meat if you don't have melody. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the 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 way I've always thought about it is there's plenty of music out there that I just I just don't get, and it's totally cool. Everyone can love that, and it doesn't affect me. And uh, and there's some music out there that is I, I believe objectively bad, but um, but there. You know, hold on, hold on, hold on. Well, so you can't set me up like that and not expect me to take that. So <laughs> give me an example of something um, that is objectively I bad. Mean, I mean, to, well, like uh, Limp Bizkit to me is is uh, one of those bands that they would not go on my worst band of all time because they they were too short period. But it's just uh, it's just bad music. So anyway, that's that that I always think of of you know Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit was was that music that that was coming out when I was in high school and it was just again, you know, just like oh my god, the people who like this music are terrible people. But <laughs> you realize though that there's also people that when, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis uh or who you know, pick your there's probably yeah. somebody that when they heard the Beatles like god, this is oh, I know. horrible. I'm, I don't get it. Why do people like this? How is this possible? This is this is, this is objectively bad. These Beatles or whoever they are. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm doing my own performance right now. I love. I. I mean. I love making fun of bad music of what I believe to be bad music and believing that exactly. it's objective. what you believe to be bad music. Well, look, I mean, look, there's a whole cottage industry of doing that. I mean, you could do that forever. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I, I love it. Um. All right. Final question here. I'm, you know, sure. you're you're with the Till Tuesday. You might have you might have covered this a bit, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if there's a an an album that continue over the long duration of your life. You you can now currently go back to and, and kind of get the most familiar comfort from. Let's see. I think. Uh, let me see here. That, that I can get the most comfort from. Yeah, that just that feels like yeah. You put it on and it's like. This is this is still great, and it just makes oh, me okay. feel. It's uh, Neil Young, a, after the Gold Rush. Okay, I can always put that on yeah. and play it from start to finish, and have no problems with that. You know, I think um, 
the new Radicals album from the 90s, I think, mm. is one of the best and most underrated uh, albums. And that it was a one and done type of thing. That makes it that much more incredible. Um, I think that's that's one of them. Um, let me think of uh, of of other things. Um, from a rock standpoint, Pyromania still. I mean, I love Hysteria when it comes to the Def Leppard sweet spot, if you will, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But Pyromania for me was was huge. I remember sing or attempting to sing, <laughs> photograph at a talent show early on. One of my first ever performances early on when I heard uh, uh, heard photograph. I can you know I can listen to that forever and and love every single Mutt Lang uh, masterpiece of that one and and Hysteria. But uh, I still fall back on. Uh, on uh, on pyromania yeah. some some individual songs that have resonated and it can still resonate i mean when i hear the beginning of uh, everybody wants to rule the world from mm-hmm. tears for fears it it gets me every single time um just absolutely love it uh let's see what else uh bring on the dancing horses um just love love that type of song uh, um i mean there's so many it's just yeah. this is the hardest thing in the world <laughs> <laughs> so there's you know, there's some yeah. things that still resonate. Uh, I can't make you love me uh, if you don't. From Bonnie Raitt, one of the saddest and most beautiful songs ever. Um, yeah, that just that type of stuff. Prince. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, Prince, and he uh, he gets his due. Believe me, uh, yeah. as he well, should, because he's one of the greats uh, greats ever. In in Minnesota, and and uh, in particular, there's a uh, right. right. Uh, I mean, he's. It, a, I mean, obviously the the '80s stuff was was incredible, but he went on, and you know, he would he would. It was hit and miss at times too. But when he when it was hit, my God, I mean, like a song like Pink, Pink Cashmere, uh, mm-hmm. those types of songs. I mean, just just gorgeous, just gorgeous. What a talent. I I, th- I thought of one final question actually. Sorry sure. if I can ask you this. When you Especially during that '90s era, when you were like, "I might be a musician, I might be a, a soccer player." I didn't. I purposely didn't ask you about that because I think it's it would take the entire podcast. But I'm wondering if there was a musician out there, maybe it still is, who you're like, "If I could, I want to write that song, or I, I want to be able to fashion myself mostly after that." Person. Is is there someone out there who you go back to and just think, man, if I if I can make a career like that, I, I I'd be perfect. Oh man, um, I mean, not a a career that's different. But if in the '90s, you know, for example, like while I didn't get into the grunge stuff, and I got heavy heavily into things like the Lemonheads, mm-hmm. um, which were huge. I mean, it's a shame about Ray and that type of moment. Mm-hmm. I think are really as close to perfect albums that you can that you can get uh, in in their beauty and their simplicity, but obviously from my perspective, their poignancy. Um, let me think of uh, of other types of bands that I I related to. I mean that whole uh, Soul Asylum, mm-hmm. Foo Fighters. Uh, third eye blind type of music. I think it took the best of what was the eighties that I loved Mm -hmm. and combined it with a, um, a much more evolved sensibility when it came to the things that they were talking about and the way that they were, uh, they were producing. And it wasn't the over top, over the top production, Mm -hmm. but it also wasn't 
com- a complete regression to uh, you know a mono type of stuff that just was was done was dumbed down specifically yeah. on purpose that I just never got. Yeah. Well, um, Alexi Lalas, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you as always. Um, talking to you about music is just, it's really fun. Um, uh, th- this has been... Well, I love that you're doing great. it. I, I love that you're doing it. I think there's a lot of interesting people out there, especially in the soccer world, uh, when, it, that when it comes to soccer, when it comes to music, that uh, can give you some good stuff. And as is the case, whenever I do anything involving music, I'm going to hang up, and then I'm going to think of all the different <laughs> bands and songs that I could have used, and it's going to drive me nuts. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and you know... It, in general, one of the one of the things that I've found of, of having multiple loves in my life, uh, um, switching between them uh, provides a lot of sanity. And and you know, my music, my life, life is far less musical these days. And that um, you know, it's the first time in my uh, life for the last uh, basically two years that I haven't been regularly performing. And so it, it's it's now trying to it's now sneaking back on me of like, oof, ooh, man. Uh, it would be really fun to, you know, even just like listening to more types of things and trying to challenge my brain, but it'd be fun to sit down and, and actually have time to, to write again. Wow, that would be that'd be wonderful. So this is really just me uh, getting a chance to uh, to just play with part of my brain that, uh, that do that, but also connect with guys like you who, you know, we've chatted over the years um, and uh, and I know you love music and that's that's great to, to just like, let's not talk about soccer for a bit. Let's let's talk about this other thing that, that gives us so much joy. Well, could I could I just leave you with two quick two quick things? Yeah. Uh, you, you started the pot off talking a little bit about my my upbringing and my and my parents. So I'm going to tell you two really really quick stories about oh, please. the the way that my parents, uh, <laughs> even though they weren't uh, they were musical, but they weren't music music wasn't a big part of our household. Uh, we, as I said, I grew up uh, going back and forth between Detroit and Athens, Greece, and I remember being in uh, a small island in Greece, which is what you do, and. Kiss had put out an album called Lick It Up, which was their first album without face paint. And I was obsessed with getting that album. But we were in the middle of uh, an island in Greece, and there was a record store in town. And we walked the two miles from the the house that we were staying at out in the boonies. And my dad and I walked, and he took me into the record store because I wanted to get this album. And come to find out that all they had was the vinyl. And we didn't have a record player. All we had was a cassette thing. And my dad, bless him, you know, wanted to do this for me, went in the back with the guy and said, can we work something out? <laughs> so this, is, this makes it so much better because this, is, this, this would irk Gene Simmons. The, what they agreed to do was pay half price and they would open the album and right there and then, for the next 45 minutes, we stood in the, in the, uh, in the record store, and they recorded from the vinyl onto yeah. a blank cassette tape, and then <laughs> gave me the cassette tape of Kiss Lick It Up. So I, I owe Gene Simmons a few, uh, few dollars, but for, I will forever be grateful and love my father for finding a way to do something for his son in order to give him the uh, uh, Kiss Lick It Up. The other thing is, is my mom worked for Chrysler uh, growing up, and she was in PR, and they would have these celebrity races where they would bring rock stars in and they would give them cars and they would race. And I'll never forget my mom. And we are always trying to look cool in our kids' eyes in some way or another. It's, it's next to impossible. But when the, the opportunity arises, it's great. I'll never forget that one, one night my mom said, hey, you need to answer the phone. And the phone rang and I picked it up. 
and it was Don Dockin, the lead singer of Dockin, who my mo- my mom had worked with in a capacity of PR and had run the celebrity race uh, uh, that Chrysler had been putting on. And I will forever love my mom for uh, for doing something like that and recognizing that while it meant nothing to her, it meant everything to her uh, her to her teenage son at the time. So thank you, mom. Uh, I know we're coming out of mom's day. Uh, I wish all the moms out there and all the fathers out there that have in certain ways encouraged their kids from a musical perspective, even if it's just introducing them to music or just just humoring them with the music, whether it's Limp Biscuit or anybody else yeah. <laughs> that they're listening to, it's their music and it will forever be part of their life, as will the stories that are associated with that music uh, that we uh, that we grow up with. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, man. Uh, I hope that you uh, stay sane out there uh, in, in quarantine and you too. look forward you too. To, uh, to catching up with you again sometime. Thanks. You're the best. Thanks.